1: 18 plus. The dream is made real! Ricky Hack rocks the world! How do you like it? How do you like it? Wish I was 50 years younger and I'd kick your ass. It's over!
2: Welcome fans to another episode of BTR Boxing Podcast with me, your host, Sean Bastow. Shortly to be joined by Johnston Brown for this Career Profiles episode. And you have voted for the baddest man on the planet, Iron Mike Tyson, as the next installment of Career Profiles. Before we get into the episode and talk about Mike Tyson's career... Please go and follow us on social media at BTR Boxing Pod on Twitter and BTR Boxing Podcast on Facebook. Subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts and please leave us a rating and a review because it really really helps us get up Apple Podcast Podcasting Charts, allows people to see us, allows people to get exposed to what we're doing, and you can also find us on Podbean on Stitcher, Spreaker, Player FM, Spotify, and Eat Sleep Boxing Repeats YouTube channel. So let's go into this episode. This, as voted for by you, is the career profile of the baddest man on the planet, Iron Mike Tyson.
1: When the sun rises
0: I wake up and chase my dreams
1: I won't regret when the sun sets Cause I live my life like I'm a beast
2: so this is the next installment of the career profile series and it's been voted for by you it's mike tyson he was voted for in a poll from heavyweight fighters from different areas including rocky marciano george foreman sonny liston as well so we decided to put these four in because they were heavyweight fighters from different eras we wanted to mix it up we wanted to do a different era and my word did he cause a stir on social media and we left out ernie shavers so we decided that we wanted to put foreman in there we felt foreman was one of the other heavyweights from that golden era of the 70s. That Justified going in there as a heavy hitter. Ernie Shavers will get his own career profile at some point down the line. So not to worry friends, we'll get that one out to you at some point as this series runs along. So we've got the baddest man on the planet to talk about today. And another great heavyweight to be discussing his career on. And my word, there's so many bits of information, so many facts, so many figures... So many stories, you know, this is gonna be an epic one to do and I'm really, really looking forward to doing Tyson because he's one of my favourite fighters growing up. Really enjoyed watching his ferociousness, his ability to cause controversy inside and outside of the ring one of the greatest fighters. One of them, arguably one of the greatest heavyweights. It's a very subjective conversation to have. But Tyson Johnston, this is Mike Tyson, the baddest man on the planet. The guy that bites off ears. The guy that gets put in prison. The guy that tells people he's going to fuck him until he loves him. But I want to go on.
3: <laughs> oh dear, I am Mike Tyson. One of the most ferocious and terrifying fighters to ever grace a boxing ring. Uh, he was just as terrifying as he was inside the ring as he was outside of it. Um, and uh, he, arguably one of the greatest heavyweights ever lived. Um, people obviously will make claim that he is um, possibly. Who knows? Who knows? A peak Mike Tyson against him, Ahmed Ali, or or a Stanley Liston, or or you know a, whoever you want to stick him in the ring with, he's, he's going to give it a good go and a chance. So he could well knock him out. Um, so what? What a great fight, I arm. Mean, he was just it was an animal, wasn't he? Uh, he literally beat his opponents to the point where you know. they just couldn't continue Um, and he was just one of the best heavyweights to ever grace a boxing ring and a a great career profile to be discussing
2: certainly is so let's start at the beginning his earlier life born michael gerard tyson he was born on june the 30th 1966 in brownsville brooklyn new york He's got an elder brother named Rodney who was born in 1961 and he's also got an elder sister named Denise who unfortunately died of a heart attack at the age of 24 in February 1990. And Tyson's biological father is listed as Purcell Tyson who was originally from Jamaica on his birth certificate but the man Tyson actually knew growing up as his father was Jimmy Kilpatrick who was from Greertown, North Carolina. He was one of the neighborhood's top baseball players as well, and he'd married previously and had a son, Tyson's half-brother, Jimmy Lee Kirkpatrick, who would basically help integrate the the Charlotte High School of football in 1965. Uh, in 1959, Kirkpatrick left his family to move to Brooklyn, where he met Tyson's mother, Lorna May, who was previously known as Lorna May Smith, a.k.a. Lorna May Tyson. Kirkpatrick frequently visited pool halls, he was is a gambler, he hung out on the streets... Tyson spoke about him later on down the line and he was quoted as saying my father was just a regular street guy caught up in the street world one of the most storied parts of Tyson's career before he ever entered a boxing gym or a boxing ring was his very harsh upbringing my word he had it very very hard
3: he did he had it very hard he was you know being brought up in in Branville, which was... Uh, the borough was known to be one of the toughest neighbourhoods around at the time. It was, you know, the ghetto. Um, it was a, and he, he was witnessing all sorts on the streets. I mean, he even said himself that, you know, when he was knocking around as a, as a young star, that, you know, he uh, he was involved in sort of muggings and stuff like that. and uh, God knows whatever else. But... You know, one, one particular story where he mentioned how uh, when he would actually describe how he would mug someone and how they would walk past him and they know that he's going to mug them but they weren't sure and then he would he would eventually mug them and he used to feel like he outwitted them <laughs> in terms of thinking that they think that he's got her and maybe he won't and then he would and uh, he actually quite enjoyed it which is he enjoyed outwitting the, the victims, which is, is actually quite terrifying to think of, really. Um, even, even at a young age, uh, in his teens, um, if not even probably younger. But, you know, it's a tough, tough area. Uh, and it was it was littered with crime and it was inevitable that eventually, you know, he's going to dabble in it. You know, That's that's how it, work. that's how it works, how the, how the world works. And, you know, unfortunately for Mike, he was born in a, in a, in a tough place and, and he had to grow up being tough. Uh, and he obviously took that all the way through in his career. But yeah, I mean, he had he had a love for pigeons. That was the one thing that he did have—that was his tender side, if you like, where he would keep pigeons, and uh, that was that was something he enjoyed doing. Um, and he dabbled in petty crime all, all the way up until he was sort of twelve years old. Um, and uh, yeah, so that was his life. Um, and, and and basically, he he, uh, he managed to to get himself into boxing um, as a boy, um, and he, you know, he, he was. He was pretty big. I mean, at 13 years old, he was a heavyweight that was tipping the scales at 200 pounds. And at 13 years old, so that that's just shows you how much muscle that Mike Tyson had. And, and he was introduced to Customato, um, who obviously, as, as we all know, Customato was the guy that steered Patterson. He was the guy that became the youngest heavyweight champion in his era. And later on, we'll discuss that, you know, he also managed, although he passed, that Mike Tyson went on to also become the youngest heavyweight champion. So, Interesting. I mean, I mean Custer Martin, he, he was around in the Bronx and he also had a bit of a troubled upbringing and he was fighting on the street, so he obviously sees something in Mike Tyson and um, he took him under his wing. He um, sees him as a potential everyweight champion of the world and He weren't
2: wrong. No, it was something that he always uh, said to him that you will go on to be the heavyweight champion of the world. It's very well documented in in interviews that Titans mentioned about his relationship with Costa Marto. But obviously, Costa took him on knowing that he was on his own. His mother passed away when he was 16 years of age. So, Costa took him on as his boxing trainer and his manager and his mentor and his friend and the person that he helped bring him to the forefront of, of where he was as a man. Because obviously, as we talked about, he had it tough growing up. The guy, you know, obviously. Obviously, he was abnormally different looking for, for a guy of his age, for a kid of his age. And the fact that he had that lisp as well, that people obviously mock in this day and age. And oh, he even mocks himself in this day and age as well. But back then, he was getting bullied for it, basically. And his first fight that he was ever actually involved in was with a bigger youth. Because, as he said about his pigeon and his love for pigeons, this youth had basically ripped the head off a pigeon. So Tyson didn't take too kindly to that. So he basically went over and smashed the shit out of this other kid. And that was actually the first ever fight he was involved in. And it's mental to think some of these little intricate details about his career, you know, come out in episodes like this because you know these were things that I knew about Tyson I knew things about him I knew stories about him I've read books on Tyson but some of the details that you can't always find out about stories about Tyson's pigeons getting one of the pigeons getting the head ripped off and him battering this youth it was a bit it was a bit crazy to really read up on but obviously his, his, his life didn't really start off very well on the outset but when he met Customato that was different Customato was the one that nurtured him up until his Untimely demise as well, you know. With, with, course, he he was the father figure that he never had Tyson. That was something he was he was very, very evident of when he spoke about him in various interviews. But as he was as he was growing up, he was actually boxing in schools at first and his emerging boxing ability was actually discovered there by Bobby Stewart uh, who was a juvenile detention centre counsellor and a farmer boxer himself and he considered him to be an outstanding fighter and he tra- actually trained him for a few months before he introduced him to Costamato, and then it was when he introduced him to Costamato that Tyson ended up dropping out of high school as a junior. And what Tyson then went on to end up doing is training with Costamato, and then eventually going on to obviously Teddy Atlas. There's a story of the the Teddy Atlas story is a pretty good one, which we'll which we'll touch on in a few moments. But obviously that that relationship he had was so significant for what was going to be evident later on down the line he didn't have a lot of paternal guidance he had people that were coming and going his mother passing away customato passing away and you know as we touch on a little bit later on down the line about getting involved with the wrong types of people you know he would go on to be not just this scary looking scary looking very built like a brick shit house kid he was also mentally very vulnerable as well
3: yeah he was because he was so young you know he wasn't very well educated um, and you know he had a, you know he'd been brought up in, in a life of crime so you know for him that was that was the route he was going down and obviously when, when De Marto did take him under his ring and then obviously Tyson's mother passed he then became his legal guardian and the first thing that De Marto did was take him his house and get out of the city Um, and and he lived under his roof as well as being his his legal guardian and also his trainer as you say he was a big mentor he took him under his wing Um, and and Tyson for the first time in his life he experienced stability um, and it was a structured existence for the first time in his life Um, and basically had the the desired effect of uh, curbing that you know his, his antics sort of on the street. Um, although at times he was allowed to go in, in the weekends, because obviously he had brothers and sisters, he had friends, so he would, you know, he'd go back to the city. Um, and there would be times when uh D'Amato uh, and Jose Torres, who was another guy that Cus trained um, and, and was involved with, with, with the camp, he wasn't necessarily a trainer, but he was a. Also, he would he would help Tyson, um, and they would literally drive the streets for a couple of little, a few hours or a day or two. Sometimes they'd find him, sometimes they wouldn't. But, you know, one thing with Tyson, he, he apparently had an eye for the ladies as well. So he, he used to enjoy coming back to the city and knocking about and with his pals and, and chasing skirt, basically. That was what Tyson was doing and probably getting involved in God knows what else. But, um, you know, it was good for Tyson. I mean, even even when Tyson sort of later on, sort of, I say later on, well, it wasn't completely at the end of his career, but there was one thing that he did say that I picked up on and it was saying that living with Cusk, um Basically, they didn't the value for money was something that Cuss had taught him, he, and he did say to him that you know money is a force of security, and basically don't put everything, all your trust into it. Uh, mm. It basically helps you to get out a lot of problems, and but don't rely on it and be independent. And the main goal is to be your own man and be independent. And then once you've got your family, um, you're no longer the main person your family comes first and regardless of the situation your career doesn't come before your family your family comes first so he was teaching the values of, of money um, and it, but you know i think with cuss because he he sort of died so quickly you know he, he died what was it It was it was in uh, uh 85 i believe with 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 pneumonia he just although he was able to nurture tyson as a fighter i think he was hoping that he would be able to nurture him also as a person because he was also he was trying to teach him something he had never been taught before and it's difficult because you're you're picking up a kid in his teens who's been through a lot how do you manage to you know can you is the intervention too late and uh, and maybe with cuss dying so soon he was able to to show him the values of money and what money was about which obviously we'll later go on to 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 explain but you know it was he, he he was a great influence on, on Tyson um, as well as the, the, the management team that he eventually put together with Bill Clayton and Jim Jacobs
2: so going back to that Teddy Atlas story then there's an interesting story that obviously Teddy Atlas has spoke about in great detail so when Teddy Atlas was an assistant to Costamato, who he, he also trained previously as an amateur, amateur boxer with Costamato as well he'd had some amateur fights with him but he ended up dismissing his career because of a back injury. So he he goes on to be a trainer and assistant to Tamallo. So when he was there for it was only a short period of time he, he insisted in the training of, obviously, the teenage protégé, which was Mike Tyson. Now, at the time, Mike Tyson was a 15-year-old, you know, hormones through the roof. We're never going to know what really, really happened, but apparently there was an altercation in which an 11-year-old relative of Teddy Atlas was inappropriately grabbed by Mike Tyson, and as a result of that, Teddy Atlas put a thirty-eight caliber handgun to Tyson's ear and told him to never touch his family again or he would kill him if he did that altercation as being confirmed by both Atlas and Tyson in various interviews and as a result he was dismissed from the camp and ended up going off to be a trainer in his own right. So that was an absolutely mental story. When I listened back to Teddy Atlas speak about that story, it was like, wow, you know, I knew Teddy Atlas was a bit eccentric as a character, but I never really knew he was he was this crazy, to be honest with you, that, you know, he was he basically went and, and put a gun to Tyson's head, and this is a 15-year-old Tyson, and as you were saying, he was an absolute animal, and he was a beast at 15. You know, he probably would have absolutely annihilated Teddy Atlas, he was, wasn't really any sort of amateur boxer himself he didn't really achieve as much in his amateur boxing career so you know Tyson at that age would have absolutely annihilated him but with a 38 calibre guns in your head, you're not really going to do much in, in that sense. So as a result of that, Atlas was dismissed from the camp and obviously, you know, Customato was his trainer alongside Kevin Rooney, who was also helping out in camp at the time. But as an amateur then, Mike Tyson he won gold medals at the 1981 and 1982 Junior Olympic Games, defeating Joe Cortez in 1981 and Kelton Brown in 1982. So that was the start of his amateur career. Also, he went to try and go to the 1984 Olympics. Now, if anybody doesn't know about the 1984 American Olympic boxing team, I would highly recommend you go on to... Easily Boxing Repeats website and check out the Dream Team articles about that particular era and about that particular American team. Tyson wanted to go on that team, but eventually lost out to Henry Tillman, who he got beat off twice as an amateur, losing both belts by a decision. So that was actually... A significant part of his career, because Tyson would go on to do even greater things in the sport than Henry Tillman would. But Henry Tillman was the one that went to the Olympics, strangely enough. So that was Tyson's sort of short but sweet amateur career, and because of how good he was, they wanted to turn him pro. Yeah,
3: they uh, and he did. He, he turned professional the following year, uh, nineteen years old, and he and he stormed his way through the heavyweight heavyweight ranks. Um, you know, he, he was he was just a an animal, basically, he shot through everybody in sort of more or less the first round. I think there was one fight which was the Larry Sims fight where it went for three rounds, but other than that, he literally blasted everybody out all the way up until uh, he fought James Tillis. But you know, during that time, obviously, uh, Cuss had passed away, so he he was he only ever got to see him. For, I think it was up to the Sterling Benjamin fight when he knocked him out in the first round, which was uh, Mike Tyson's 11th win, and that was when Cuff died. But thankfully, with, with Cuff, he had he had obviously bought in, as, as I mentioned earlier, with, uh, with Jim Jacobs and Bill Clayton, who were, um, you know, they, they were successful in, in advertising, um, and I think Jim Jacobs was an was a ex-handball champion. But they were close friends of Cuff's, of um, and they established a company called The Big Fight. Um, and it, it, but I, if I remember rightly, I think a lot of their old fight films are actually on youtube i think there's a lot of them on youtube but it was where tyson picked up um you know he he would watch the old reels of the old fights um and that was where he had he found a love for boxing history as well mike tyson in his early days um I'm, I'm i'm sure he probably still does so he had some old footage that cuss had and bill clayton and and jim jacobs and and that was where he got the idea as well in those films to uh in, in it to come out in, in the old the old fashioned black robe and just the black shorts um you know you think about the 80s yeah the 80s was known to be quite colorful and uh, uh, you know it was it was good on the eye wasn't it in terms of what people wear they'd wear all sorts of crazy stuff you know all the tassels and everything else but Tyson, you know he liked the old school stuff and and he liked the way the old school fighters fought and that was what he tried to adopt with head low and good head movement and try and blast people out and that's where he got the idea to have the old black shorts
2: yeah so he started with his career relatively successful of course you know 1985 consisted of literally a fight nearly every single month of the year which was again we spoke about this a few weeks ago in one of the legendary knights episodes you don't really see a lot of fighters fighting that many times in the first year uh, of of the pro career especially in this day and age but obviously Tyson absolutely ridiculous when he fought in 1985 you know the amount of fights he was involved in and they were all quick fire fights so that was the thing because he was knocking people out for fun it was easy for him just to get back in the ring really quickly because he'd hardly broke a sweat beating half of these guys that he was in the ring with so the first year as a pro great success obviously cuss died massive effect on him going into into 1986 was really where we started to see him come to the forefront of of the heavyweight division really so he starts to get in there in his first televised fight against jesse ferguson
0: tyson's making mistake.
1: And refusing to break when ordered. He had warned him earlier in this round. Jesse Ferguson refused to break. The referee Louis Rivera disqualified him. And ironically, that breaks Mike Tyson's KO string that will go down in the books as a win disqualification. It will not be his 18th straight knockout. One of the dubious distinctions of the year. Jesse Ferguson becomes the first of Mike Tyson's 18 professional opponents not to suffer a knockout and he did it by almost forcing the referee, Luis Rivera, to disqualify him.
2: Beats Jesse Ferguson and then, as you say, fights James Quick in May 1986 and he was the first person to take Tyson the distance and then we get to one of your good old favourite opponents of Mike Tyson's Mitch Green and the story of Mitch Green tell it again
3: oh Mitch Green he's just a, an absolutely awesome character I do love Mitch um, he's off his head he's, he's eccentric as you like but um, yeah Mitch Green um, the, the problem always stemmed from the fact that Mike Tyson reportedly received $250,000 for their fight whereas Green only made $30,000 um, and it was actually at the way the day before uh, of the bout that Green threatened to put out of the fight, wanting more money. He, um, and, and, he, and he basically never let go of it his whole entire life. Um, so in the end, um, basically, obviously, the fight went on. And, and Mitch Blood Green um, was always partial to a bit of, uh, oh, God God knows what he was smoking. He was always smoking some sort of, all sorts. Um, and yes, and it, it, later on in his career, there was an altercation with... Uh, with um, uh, Mike Tyson in, in Dapper Dan's clothing store where Mike Tyson knocked him out, which was actually before Frank Bruno fight, which we'll probably move on to sooner or later. But And that was where he broke his hand by punching Mitch Green, uh, who, who basically confronted him in the shop. Um, and he got literally sparked out in a massive shine and it was printed all over the press in New York uh, in front of every newspaper the next day you know Mike Tyson actually broke his hand he had to postpone the fight with Bruno but Mitch would never let it go and he was uh yeah he's a colourful character I don't come fight with anyone you know ever look at the fight I mean he's, he's a, he takes Tyson the distance as his claim to fame but just Mitch Green in general would be there, his eccentric self and some of his bizarre bizarre videos uh, that you can find on YouTube of, of Mitch Green but colourful character when uh I just just always find him really funny and and engrossing basically but but yeah Tyson went the distance for the second time after Tillis against
2: Mitch Green. so then he moves on in his career and in 1986 he actually contested in 12 bouts before he moved on to fight for his first world title but in the midst of them bouts he fought the son of the legendary Joe Fraser, Marvis Fraser. in the midst of that so he beat Marvis Fraser quite handily and then he beat Jose Robalta and Alfonso Ratliff Before getting his shot at the World Heavyweight Crown, the WBC title at the Hilton Hotel in Las Vegas against Trevor Burbick making his second appearance on the career profile series. Obviously, we spoke about Trevor beating Muhammad Ali in his final fight of his career, what was a sad affair but Trevor Burbick in 1986 was the WBC heavyweight champion of the world and Mike Tyson went in there and absolutely blew him away to become the youngest ever heavyweight champion at just the age of 20 years old 20
1: years old Mike Tyson on his way to becoming one of the youngest heavyweight champions of all time bangs the body, wow, with that up and Tyson catches him with a right left hook and he goes down should be able to get up from this, his legs may be shut. they are, as Trevor Burwick falls back in the rope, I don't know if he's going to be able to continue, he's got the heart, but his body won't let him do what his mind wants to, and he's counted out, it'll be scored as a knockout, Mills Lane counted him out to 10, it's all over, we've got a brand new heavyweight champion of the world, Mike Tyson,
3: yeah, it was destructive when he against Trevor Burbek, who who is kind of famous, obviously beat Muhammad Ali, but you
1: know,
3: an aged Ali, um, and then he, he he had the title and obviously went on to uh, fight Tyson, and, and he got absolutely just wasted in two rounds, and it, it was it was just a ferocious ferocious beating from Tyson, and and boy, did it did it make him uh, if he if, if wasn't already, he was, was potentially gonna be a superstar, but at this point, it's, it's made him absolute superstar this obviously was a part of the the heavyweight undisputed series which was produced by HBO and also by Don King so um, he was also that was the first step uh, which was the WBC title before moving on against James Smith who uh, and he won the WBA title unified the division there Um, also obviously a part of that series Smith had actually beaten Tim Witherspoon in 1986 who had also beaten Frank Bruno in the summer of 86 so that was Bruno's second attempt at a world title And once again, Mike Tyson, um, although it... Went the twelve round distance. It was a pretty one sided affair, and, and Jane Smith he showed glimpses that actually maybe Tyson could get you could get to him, and and you know, but you know it was more about just lasting a distance, and then he did that. But obviously at that point, Mike Tyson then become the WBA and WBC heavyweight champion.
2: He did. Now, if you've not already heard the interview conducted with James Bone Crusher Smith for the Life and Times of, go and check it out on the feed because it is there. And I did a little bit of a sit down with him for about forty five minutes to around an hour about his career about him winning his world heavyweight title and also about his fight with Mike Tyson of course so if you want to go and hear a little bit more about the fight with Mike Tyson go and listen to that particular episode it's the life and times of James Bonecrusher Smith so moving on he then defends the WBC WBA titles against Pinkland Thomas and then he picks up the IBF to add to that crown by beating Tony Tucker who was 34 and 0 at the time in 1987 in Las Vegas before going on to defend it against Tyrell Biggs and then a significant moment in his career beating Larry Holmes in 1988 defending the three titles again and it was this story that we've spoke about before on the Legendary Knights series when we've covered the Tyson and Douglas fight off when we spoke about that particular era of time when Tyson was in, we spoke about the fact that the Larry Holmes fight was significant because of how much he looked up to Muhammad Ali. And Muhammad Ali it was in the ring before that fight literally took place and was rumoured to have said to him, go and get him for me.
4: Well, it happened, I was very lucky to win. Larry was pretty old at that time, like, Holmes, like Ali was old when he fought Holmes. Yeah. So he was pretty old and 38 and I was 20. Mm-hmm. And I won. And what did Muhammad Ali say to you? Well, you think get him for me. Yeah, get him
2: for me. And that was something that always sticks out in my mind, uh, something Tyson spoke about in various interviews. And for me, the win over Larry Holmes was significant, because although Larry Holmes was probably past his best at this point, having fought 50 times and lost twice, he was still a guy to, to be reckoned with. He's still a guy... I had respect that had commanded respect because of what he'd previously done in the heavyweight division so for Tyson then to go in there and dispatch of Larry Holmes was another fantastic win on his record but more significantly the whole Ali being in the ring and saying what he said was a quite a, a big significant thing for me in Tyson's career
3: yeah I mean, that must have been amazing for Mike Tyson being a, you know, looking at Ali as one of his heroes, his idols. Um, So for him to to, to say, you know, to to do that to Larry, who was obviously an old star in part of Mohammed it was interesting uh but great i mean that must have been brilliant and he actually did he went in there and battered him for four rounds um homes had no chance in hell but um i mean just just before that as well i mean jacobs had died of leukemia in 1988 as well so this was sort of the size of the problems beginning to emerge in mike tyson's career following the Holmes fight um obviously in the audience with that victory over Holmes as well you had supermodels around you No naomi campbell and uh there was also um an actress in the crowd called Robin Givens, um, who two weeks later, Tyson and Givens were married. So um, this is where his life started to, 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 make, to take a drastic turn. We've obviously DeMar gone and, and Jacobs passed away, it left Bill Clayton as, as his manager, and obviously Adam Rooney, who was also massively influential in Tyson's career. Um, and then this is where the old Don King started to sniff around a little scheming promoter, <laughs> who um, was absolutely terrible for Mike Tyson? He was a, he was a horrible, horrible person. <laughs> Let's be honest. What, what he did was just shocking. Um, I know it is. You know he probably had just as much of you know information on Mike Tyson and what he got up to as, as what Tyson had on him. But the the one thing is he, he was just trying to, to to force his way in after this Larry Holmes fight. Robin Givens obviously now a part of Tyson. You know she, she's married to him, so she she felt that she had a right now take control of his career so you had robin Givens and her mother on one side you had don king on the other and then you had the last remaining of 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 that that sort of dream team or the last two which was bill clayton and and adam rooney and and clayton in actual fact donald trump ended up getting involved in this which is really crazy And, and donald trump was trying to take guide trying to guide tyson apparently to to make money and and how he could guide his career and but that was someone that Don King had pulled in. So, you know, Don King was trying to pull in people with influence. Everybody's now wanting the Tyson money. They're starting to put these little ideas into Tyson's head as, as that Bill Clayton's taking money from him. And it was looked into by accountants and lawyers. And, and nobody ever, ever said Bill Clayton ever did anything wrong. But in the end, um, Don King was just mashing his way in, although Bill Clayton did, did still remain his manager, Tyson was calling the shots. And, and there, there's a dreadful interview as well, where he's, he's speaking to the cameras and he's sort of saying how he would never have known this was happening to him if it wasn't for his beautiful wife and her mother. And oh, and she's there laughing and smiling. It was just so bad and fake. And you could just see that Mike Tyson blatantly just being completely robbed for all of his money that he's earning. And, and in his head, he actually believed that what he did is the right thing, which... Wasn't and and it was just sad. It's actually quite sad to see watching back on some of the footage, sort of in the past few days. But Tyson's life was at this point was starting to turn for the bad.
2: Yeah, it certainly was. Uh, but during this period of time as well, his notoriety and his fame actually came to the attention of well-known gaming company of the 80s, Nintendo. After witnessing one of mm. Tyson's fights, Nintendo's uh, American president decided that they were so impressed by his power and his skill, they decided that they wanted him to be included in an upcoming game, which was called Punch-Out. So if anybody ever remembers Punch-Out from the 1980s, uh, yeah, it was... It was absolutely fantastic at the time. Looking back on it now, it's a shower of shit compared to, obviously, what we get in this day and age. But that was the big hit at the time, which actually sold over a million copies. So Mike Tyson's (laughs) Punch-Out was also brought out around that period of time in 1987. And then, obviously, he... Beat Larry Holmes as we were speaking about earlier, Uh, and then he went on to beat Tony Tubbs in Tokyo, Japan. Easy second round TKO. And it was then in June of 1988 where we got the biggest fight of his career, and what some may say is arguably the highest point of Mike Tyson's career the Michael Spinks fight. So, this was a huge, huge fight. It was billed as a super fight. It was a battle of wills. It was Michael Spinks who was undefeated at the time. Who apparently had more of a legitimate claim to being the true heavyweight champion than what Mike Tyson did. Even though Mike Tyson was the WBC, WBA and IBF champion at the time. So he was the undisputed champion of the heavyweight scene. But Michael Spinks had a claim to it as well. So Michael Spinks, you will maybe remember Michael Spinks. His previous outings before he moved up to the heavyweight division, he was actually a very, very well established and great light heavyweight champion in the early 80s. But when he moved up to the heavyweight division, he actually beat Larry Holmes for the IBF title... and then beat him a second time in 1986... and then for a third time... he went on to defend the title against Stefan Tangstad in 1986... beating him but then opted in 1987 to fight Jerry Cooney... and as a result of that was stripped of his IBF title... so he'd never actually lost his title in the ring... so there was this claim at the time going around... that actually Spinks had a better claim than Tyson did... Uh, Because he was also declared as the lineal champion, whatever that may mean to people in this day and age. He was also declared as that as well. So this fight was obviously a lot bigger. And it was like comparing fights to sort of this magnitude of this day and age. It was probably as big as what Manny Pacquiao Floyd Mayweather was built up to be. This was a huge fight, an absolutely huge fight with so much riding on it. And as I said earlier, for me and for a lot of people, a lot of journalists and a lot of people that, love the boxing, this was the pinnacle of Tyson's career, and he went in there and he destroyed... Michael Spinks within 91 seconds of the first round and Michael Spinks looked like a shitting dog in the middle of the ring as Tyson was walking down to it. This was the epitomization of the fear factor before Tyson had even stepped in the ring looking at the face of Michael Spinks.
3: God, Michael Spinks, that is a picture. that He just looked absolutely petrified, didn't he? He was beaten before he even stepped in that ring and then when Tyson got in the ring I think he just realized, wow, what the hell am I? Am I getting myself into here? And as you say, Michael Spinks, was, you know, he was well-known like heavyweight. Um, and, he, you know, he was, he, he, he was a big name. As you say, he hadn't lost that IBF title. He had he'd vacated it to fight um, uh, Cooney. So it was interesting. It was a massive fight. It was the biggest fight of boxing at the time. And as you say, it was massive. It was a huge fight. Um, and, you know, it was built. Once and for all, uh, 700,000 pay-per-view buys um, on the networks um, and 800,000 buys on the closed-circuit theater TV, which generated a revenue of $32 million, which is the equivalent of 67790000 790 thousand mi- in today's market. So big money, but yeah, it, it lasted 95 seconds. The
1: right hand lands in the head of Mike Spinks. It's Tyson all the way here in round number one. Vicious shots to the body. Nothing really heavy landing yet, but he's taking them. The uppercut. Body shot. One, down goes three, Mike Spinks for the three, first time. The count is up to four and five and six and seven and eight. That was a body shot that took him down. Here comes Mike Spinks in. He leaves with the right hand. Down he goes. I don't think you'll get up from this. Mike Spinks is laying flat on his back. The count is up to five and six. At seven and eight. eight, he won't be able to do it. Nine. It's all over. Ten. Mike Tyson has won it. Spinks almost fell back. through. a dramatic first round knockout for Mike Tyson. Unbelievable,
3: Spinks. Which uh, it was unbelievable, really, that that it, it got him got rid of him so quickly. I, and I, I think I don't think Spinks was. Um, I don't think he quite fancied it to be honest. Um, but this is also the time in June of that year when uh, when uh, his wife. Robin came out and, and said that she had uh, Tyson based and was losing his mind and, and he had beat her up. And um, it was when Tyson always says, uh, said, Anyone with a grain of sense would know that if I punch my wife, wife I will rip her head off. Um, it's all lies. I never laid a finger on her. But it was quite ironic that this was the time when she was in a position where she, he could now take half if she leaves. Um, I'm, I'm sure there was no prenuptial signed at this point. So. Uh, So, Robin, she left with her mother um, and... That was after the Spinks fight, and who was he left with? None other than Don King by his side, and that was all that he had to try and uh, to, to, to continue in his career. Um, obviously, moving on after the Spinks fight was Frank Bruno.
2: Yeah, well, it's interesting you talk about Don King uh, was the one that he was left with. Obviously, in late 1988, he actually parted ways with manager Bill Caton and fired his longtime trainer Kevin Rooney. So Kevin Rooney was there for, from day dot really. Uh, you know, he was working alongside Costamare, but then took over full time training when Costamato passed away so Kevin Rooney's been there from day one and all the shit that's going on in Tyson's mind at this time you know he doesn't know who the right people are clearly Don King seems to be selling him this American dream and he gets rid of the two people that were probably the most loyal to him as part of his camp and then as a result of that then goes in to this sort of little bit... This is where the downward spiral starts to come, you know, in his boxing career as well as his outside personal life as well. You spoke about Robin Givens there and and what she was like outside of the ring, you know, for all intents purposes she was a money grabbing bitch and we all knew it and I think people that probably would have observed it from the outside in the 80s would have thought exactly the same that it wasn't genuine, she was only ever in it for the money, she was what was known as a gold digger and she certainly got her bloody gold off Tyson and in terms of his boxing career we've covered the the Mike Tyson Frank Bruno fight in the Legendary Knights episode of Tyson versus Douglas so I don't want to touch too much into that because of obviously how much other significance things that have happened inside and outside the ring with Mike Tyson. So obviously, we, as we know, he beat Frank Bruno in what was a really good little contest in 1989, and then went on to knock out Carl the Truth Williams in the first round in July of 1989, before we get to the next big significant fight in his career. And we are live inside Korakuen Stadium in Tokyo, Japan, as
1: HBO Sports presents World Championship Boxing. Tonight, undisputed heavyweight champion Mike Tyson's 10th title defense against the challenger James Buster Douglas. It is scheduled
2: for 12 rounds. Probably the most significant fight of his career. Now, this is... It it sort of pains me to say it, to be honest, because for everything Tyson did leading up to this particular fight with James Buster Douglas, you know, he was known as the most ferocious fighter on the planet. People were talking about him as the greatest heavyweight that has ever lived, even past Ali, and that was a very, very bold statement to be making, and some people still even debate the hell out of it today. But the James Buster Douglas fight was... I, I feel that a lot of what people remember Tyson for from the casual audience is losing to Buster Douglas, losing his shit outside of the ring and getting robbed of a load of money. And that is really, really sad to think about. That's how the perception of some people are with Mike Tyson. Boxing fans, real boxing fans, look at Mike Tyson as what he was leading up the James Buster Douglas fight where he was at his ferocious best where people would theorise or fantasise how he could go on to beat someone like Muhammad Ali but the James Buster Douglas fight obviously everything in the lead up to that as we've discussed in that Legendary Knights episode the preparation wasn't great the preparation was poor and it was a writing on the wall situation really I think if we would have had social media in 1990 and we would have been able to get all these leaked footage of training and leaked footage of this and leaked footage of that you probably would have seen how shit the preparations really really were and I don't think us trying to describe that does it any sort of justice given how bad the preparations were for him inside and outside of the ring but as history tells us, the biggest boxing upset in history was when James Buster Douglas knocked out Mike Tyson in Tokyo to dethrone him of the WBC, WBA and RBF World Heavyweight titles.
1: Buster's legs actually look fresher to me. See Mike, the way he went back in his heels, doesn't have the good balance. His legs together as Buster's landing these... Oh, nice, Tyson hits the canvas, he's in big trouble, he may not be able to recover, it's up to seven, and eight, he's not going to make it, unbelievable, 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 Buster Douglas is the new heavyweight champion of
3: the world. Yeah, it was was a huge moment in in Tyson's career, Um, and you know, he he had lost that. You know the ability to. You know, I think a he's still young and he still had a lot of potential and he still had a lot to learn. And sort of getting rid of Rooney was was a bad mistake. And um, because I believe that if he was around in the corner, he could have just continued and who knows what he could have gone on to do. But yeah, it was it was a, a shock victory. Um, Douglas then obviously went on to lose to to Evander Holyfield as well. Um, so Tyson was sort of in a situation where now that's the big fight where. Uh, you know, Holyfield holds the titles um, and Tyson has now become the contender. Uh, but, you know, he was still in those, he was just in trouble time, you know. He, would, he was around bad people. He had—he didn't have a good guy next to him in Don King. Um, he was just always in it just for the money. Saying that, you know, he still went on, fought Henry Tillman, the guy we mentioned earlier, who beat him twice in the amateur, and um, beat Tillman in, in just the first round. Uh, also defeated Alex Stewart in the first round as well. Before he had the two fights with, with Donovan Ruddock, um, Razor Ruddock. Um, and you know, he TKO'd him in the seventh. Um, that was also Builders' Fight of the Year. It had, again, loads, of, you know, it was 960,000 pay-per-view buys on the King, uh, network King Vision. So King was raking it in still, even after the Buster Douglas fight, with potential... Fight with Evander Holyfield, which was what everybody wanted, um, and then obviously fought Riddick again. Uh, this time it was even more on the pay per view front. It was one million and two hundred fifty pay per view buys, also on the net- uh, the King Division network. Um, Built as a rematch, and then um, this is where his life was already spiraling out of control. Went into the deepest of deepest holes, and, and quite possibly, you know, it, it not only stopped Tyson in his tracks for for the next two years or six years or whatever it was he went in for basically was four years he served but it was just you know it it was chaos i mean it whether he did it or not in terms of the rape i mean he's come out really i say recently, he came out and on his documentary before and said that you know he's promiscuous and he didn't treat women too well but he didn't touch this and then he sort of you don't know at the end of the day he was around bad people and, and unfortunately for him it ended up with a a prison sentence of uh, three years or it's third floor.
2: But let's just take a little pause for one moment to give a shout out to the sponsors for BTR Boxing Podcast It's Bear Attack Boxing providing high quality boxing gloves boxing equipment to your suitable needs. You can find them at www.bearattackboxing.co.uk and all over social media you've got the Fight Pro 1 gloves, the Pluto gloves, the new Bear Attack Boxing t-shirt range the inner gloves, the hand wraps some great boxing products on there, so go and check them out. And also, we've got a little present for you because you're a loyal listener to BTR Boxing Podcast, we've got an exclusive discount code for you. Now, it's a 10% discount, and all you've got to do is when you're at the checkout and you've got them boxing gloves and that t shirt in there that you want to buy, go onto the promo code and enter BTR10 for 10% off. And 10% is not something to be scoffed at in this day and age. It can definitely get you a few quid off them high-quality products that Bear Attack Boxing are selling. So, as a loyal listener to BTR Boxing Podcast, when you buy or purchase something through Bear Attack Boxing's website, in the promo code, enter BTR10 and you will get an exclusive 10% discount off your basket. So please, go and take advantage of it. Follow them on social media, Bear Attack Boxing and it's bearattackboxing.co.uk So, he was arrested in July 1991 for the rape of 18-year-old Desiree Washington who, at the time, was Miss Black Rhode Island. It was in an Indianapolis hotel room. This is apparently had taken place. So... It was loads of different intricate details around this. So there was partial corroboration of Desiree Washington's story came via testimony from Tyson's chauffeur Virginia Foster, who confirmed that Desiree Washington state of shock after the incident and further testimony came from Thomas Richardson in the emergency room who was the physician who examined her more than 24 hours after the incident and confirmed that her physical condition was consistent with rape. So, as a result he goes to court and on March 26, 1992 he was sentenced to 6 years in prison along with 4 years of probation at the age of only 25, which is where a lot of people will argue the best years of his career were lost due to this. And as you rightly pointed out, his new amount of interviews that Tyson has touched on this subject before about how he didn't treat women well and there were situations where he wished he could have changed. But the one thing he's always stayed consistent with is that he never raped this woman.
4: When I was falsely accused of raping that wretched swine of a woman, Desiree Washington, it was the most horrible time of my life. It was the most heinous day of my life because mm-hmm. I go into prison. I lost my humanity. I lost my reputation. I lost everything that I worked so hard for. You know, what I mean, say that I was um, conducting myself as a little brat that time and being um, promiscuous with the women. I done no such thing as uh, took that woman's chastity at all. I have to be honest. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a jerk sometimes, and I say things that sometimes crash. And course, but um, I would never do nothing to that extent. And whatever I did, I may have took advantage of women before, but I never took advantage of her. I don't know what to say about that situation. It just basically took the whole life out of me in that situation. I never again trusted anyone.
2: I'm, I'm not here to judge on anything to do with, with, with rape or victims of rape and I'm not here to, to pass any type of judgement on Tyson or justify anything because I will never know, you will never know and the majority of the world will never really know what happened that night in that hotel room. However, for someone to vehemently deny the allegations and serve time for something that they say they didn't commit and still to this day say the same things they did 20 odd years ago to me indicates that you know, there could be an element of lies going on in this whole story. I mean, you look at this day and age, uh, there's been a lot of incidents in the the last 10 years where footballers have been accused of raping women, and one case in particular quite recently with a footballer named Ched Evans was supposed to have raped a woman in a room, and it actually turned out that this woman lied. And she ended up being... She was the one that ended up being convicted as a result. And he got his conviction overturned... After spending a little bit of time in prison for it. So these things do happen now because of how mentally vulnerable mike tyson was and how easily led astray he was could this have happened back then yeah quite easily it could have happened back then he was the probably one of the most famous men on the planet at the time given what he'd been doing inside the ring how he was known for outside of the ring he was the man on everybody's lips he was the talking point obviously he loses to to Buster Douglas and it's a big shock and you know you hear all the controversy around that particular fight and it it could have quite easily been a case of they seeing a vulnerable person who they could exploit and you know, there could have been even a potential that they was all in on it but then again this could have genuinely happened, this girl could have been raped and he could have traumatised it for the rest of the life. It's something that we will never know and never fully understand but from our perspective Tyson was then jailed and not released until 1995 which is when Don King got him out of prison and then got him to resume his boxing career.
3: Yeah, yeah, he, was, he came back after his little stint, as you say, come out, it really? after just for a year um, and yeah, it, I'm with you you, know, you don't know whether it was sure or we don't know but you know, it's he, as I say, he, he was—he didn't surround himself with the best people. You wouldn't be surprised if people were in on it and making, making money off of him. He was a big star. You know. he did come out eventually, um, and he came out and fought on uh, the 19th of August, 1995, against uh, Peter McNeely. Now
1: keep laughing, keep laughing. <laughs> they are real funny, huh? If you go, if any one of you doesn't respect me. Or what I'm doing or what I've been doing for the last three months since we've been announced. And going against a guy like this, you'd have a big dump in your pants. Talk to him, Peter. And I'll read and I'll read my final statement. I'm Hurricane Peter McNally from Medfield Mass. On Saturday night, watch me kick Tyson's ass. But if you haven't made your pay-per-view arrangements yet, make them soon. Because remember what happens when I wrap you in my cocoon.
3: And McNeely, uh, disqualified after his manager entered the ring because obviously he was taking a beating. <laughs> um, so he came back and, uh, you know, in that creepy, um, the bill was called He's back and it, it was just creeps me out because I was thinking, here's Johnny from the Shining. <laughs> you know, here's Tyson, back in the ring, God, lock up your daughters type of thing. But, um, yeah, Tyson, obviously, he, he got rid of, uh, Peter McNeely by disqualification as it, as it has on record, um. And then the Mathis Jr., Buster Mathis Jr., who was also a good fighter. He was always a bit of a porky fella, Buster Mathis Junior, but he could box a bit, you know. So uh, it, it was it was a good good uh, good couple of victories for him, um, when he knocked him out in the third round before moving on Taking on Frank
2: Bruno. Yeah, just going back to the Peter McNeely fight as well. It was that much of an anticipated event, even though Peter McNeely had not really done anything of significance in his in his <laughs> career. It actually grossed more than ninety six million dollars worldwide, including a United States record of sixty three million dollars for pay per view television. And the fight was purchased by one point five two million homes, setting both pay per view viewership and revenue records. And that is absolutely immense. That's basically like Tyson coming out of retirement to fight a journeyman, essentially. <laughs> and, and to get that sort of money for it is absolutely ludicrous. Um, it just goes to show you the power of the man, really. He became even more of a hot commodity, even though he'd been put in prison for something that is, is one of the most heinous crimes you know, that, that can be committed in life. So for him to come out and then be able to get that sort of money straight away you know, Don King knew what he was doing. Mr. Slippery makes another appearance on the podcast, ruining the career of one of the greatest heavyweights. Uh, what could have been the greatest heavyweight, arguably, on the planet, should he have not fell into the hands of guys like Don King, but. He easily regained one of the world titles by beating Frank Bruno as you said in March 1996 and I remember it well because it was one of the first big major pay-per-view fights that I'd actually stayed up all night for, I was only at the age of 10 at this point so it was a big thing staying up to watch a big fight like this only for Frank Bruno, the hero to get absolutely obliterated by Tyson and for Tyson to then obviously come back and be able to go and resume his career in the way he did now in 1996 Lennox Lewis supposedly turned down a 13 and a half million dollar guarantee to fight Tyson at this point which is something that is argued by Lewis because Lewis always said he wanted to fight Tyson earlier than when he actually did so what happened was Lewis then accepted a four million dollar step aside money to allow Tyson to fight Bruce Seldon again for an expected 30 million dollars so if Tyson was to defeat Bruce Seldon he would then fight Lewis next and that was the, the way it was all worked out in the deals so Tyson then added the WBA belt by defeating Seldon in the first round in September of 1996 and Then, was also talked about a bit of a throwback to when Sonny Liston seemingly looked like he threw the fight with Muhammad Ali, because Bruce Seldon was severely criticised and mocked in press, because it looked like he collapsed from a few, what looked like innocuous punches from Tyson.
3: Yeah, it it did seem, it was a a little bit of a, you you do wonder, especially with with Don King involved, it would have given a. A bit of a payoff to take a little dive um, to, to pave the way for, for the big fight and make sure nothing happens. Obviously, could be thinking about the Buster Douglas fight and probably think, well, oh, you know, let's make sure he gets the win and we can we can get the Holy Fool fight. But as you just was, the other guy, he was the guy that was looking like he was going to be fighting him. And then on the other side of things, some people say that he sidestepped the challenge of Lennox Lewis uh, for the WBA title because he opted for a more lucrative prospect of um, putting the WBA title on the line against Holyfield because it was more money involved so so maybe who knows it's a bit of both isn't it really did Lewis avoid him did Tyson sidestep him just for the more money maybe so I think probably that's a bit more reasonable where Tyson would have um, decided actually do you know what I'd rather fight Holyfield for, for more money he probably was given a, the, the, the figures in front of him you could fight Lewis for this much and you could fight Holyfield for this much and he probably thought well why not let's fight Holyfield and let's earn the money he obviously Needed the money, um, saying that he was earning a shitload of it um, because obviously the Yvonne Nasser fight was billed as finally it was a one point six million pay per view buys this one, or, or, and it was shown on um, Showtime and King Vision again. But yeah, Holyfield, I mean, it's a great fight again. I mean, I mean, the, the funny thing is, that it is, as you say, with, with people, you know, spending the amount of money they they you know, 1, 1. 1.6 million buyers against Mcneely and then the same amount of pay-per-view buyers for Holyfield. It's interesting because people weren't necessarily looking at Tyson anymore as this ferocious guy who's so intimidated in boxing he's just going to just just get rid of a guy in no time and everyone wants to see that. I think it was also the fact that they weren't too sure what we was going to get from Tyson. So that was like the ex- you're intrigued with it is what's he going to do next like you know it's in the weigh-in or the post fight or pre-fight interviews you don't know you were expecting Tyson to do something crazy outside the ring and I think that was where most of the public eye was looking at with Tyson and, and Evander Holyfield, I think they felt that Evander Holyfield was shot um and that's why they took that fight over Lewis um and I think they felt that they would It'd be an easy night to work for him, man. Boy, were they wrong, because Holyfield, quite simply, beat Mike Tyson up. Mike
4: Tyson is a warrior, too, and he's he's still going to have that natural power. That's the last thing that'll go. Evander's got to be careful here to hold on, but he has fought a perfect
1: fight. No matter what happens from here on in, we are looking at a sports legend in the purple trunks, Evander Holyfield. Holyfield continues to dig in. A left hook to the head. He's got Tyson in trouble. Tyson's ready to go. Sin. It's the most unbelievable thing I've ever been privileged to witness.
2: Mayhem! It is Bethlehem. Well, that's it, isn't it? You know, he broke his heart essentially, and the, 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 there's a lot of sort of speculation around that fight, which led to a second fight between these two, where Holyfield was was, was always known as a bit of a bit rough inside fighter, but there was a lot of. Instances where it looked like he was sort of butting Tyson in the fight, and as a result of that, obviously allegations were made from Tyson's camp of the frequent headbutts during the bout. Although the headbutts were actually ruled as accidental by the referee, the you know Don King and the Tyson camp were saying no, he was he was cheating to win, uh, and that's how he ended up getting the 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 jump on Mike Tyson. So they would become a point of contention, which led to this subsequent rematch and. For me, looking back on the first fight, it felt like Tyson just got overly frustrated. The fact that Holyfield is a rough fighter and he can throw a few dirty tactics in here and there. And he upset Tyson's rhythm and Tyson just couldn't get into any sort of rhythm. Got frustrated and eventually went on to get stopped. But in the second fight, it was more evident that the frustration took over because of what happened in that particular fight. This was a big attraction. The second fight was billed even higher and grossed over a hundred million dollars, Tyson receiving thirty and Holderfield receiving thirty five. It was the highest paid professional boxing purses up until two thousand and seven and it was purchased by one point nine nine million households, setting a pay per view record, again up until the same date of may fifth, two thousand and seven, which was Delahoya versus Mayweather. So this fight at this time become even more controversial even more hyped and it created one of the most controversial events in modern sports history by at the end of the third round tyson's getting really frustrated and decides you know what i'm just gonna bite his ear and he does once and then he does a second time and actually physically ripped off a piece of holyfield's ear prompting the referee mills lane to disqualify mike tyson for biting and ripping off the air of Evander Holyfield. <laughs> Evander
1: Holyfield now. As a left hook. You know what's funny, Tyson. Mike was having his best round again. He, he beat did him again. it again. Mike Tyson has bitten Evander Holyfield for the second time, and he it? all out for. I saw that one. That was right clear. It's a miracle he didn't get bit back.
4: I'll tell you what, this is unbelievable.
1: I'll, let's take two looks at that one at that bike now here's the bike keep your eye on mike see mike has just see look at him you can see it you can see it there it is
4: i can't believe what i'm seeing fellas they're going in real slow motion mike gets in a headlock and look at this he just reaches in and bites
1: him it's it's over it's over during that replay bills lane signaling that it's over i think they've just about had enough Tyson
3: showing desperation in fighting Holyfield two times. Ah, oh, just the famous bite fight. I mean, what on earth was going on his head? As you say, I mean, it, the first fight was a pretty much a one-sided beat down from Holyfield, and then the second fight again was uh, was pretty much exactly the same. And, and I think for me, Tyson obviously thought when he said, "You know what? There's no way I'm going to win this fight." And um, he, he did he quit? I mean, in a way, he probably did. He probably just looked for a way out, didn't he? He didn't want to just quit and say, no, I don't want to more part of this, or no, my uh, He was thinking, actually, how ah, can I get out of this? So and he decided to have a nibble on his ear. First, initially, it was a little nibble. Uh, he got told off on board with it. And then, obviously, the gun still comes out. And this time, I mean, literally bites a chunk of his ear off. And, and the craziness of it was that people couldn't believe what it had just done. Obviously, it was like a melee in the ring. Everyone's going mad. Like, what on earth is going on? You've got Oliver holding this towel to his ear, pissing out with blood. You've got fights breaking out all around the arena because people obviously put money on this fight, and they're losing money, and everyone's sort of reared up and highly energized. So there's fights breaking out in, in the arena, in the casinos, even outside. It was just chaos. I mean, it's still one of the most, I, I can't even tell you, when I watch that, it just, it just, I can't believe he's done it. It just shocks me. I, I don't think, it, I mean, we've seen recently with Cash Alley biting price. I mean, he didn't bite anything off, but he had a few nibbles in his chest, didn't he? And my goodness me, I mean, Tyson, when he does things, he does things for real. And, and I remember him walking to the ring. I remember seeing the images, and, and everyone just lobbing stuff at Mike Tyson, like cups and stuff, as he walked in that long walk to the, back to the changing room. And, and even after the fight, there's stories as well where someone called him something, and, and Tyson, you know, you now a bit mellow and tired. He was going again. He was trying to attack his geezer for saying something to him, and he's got his onside holding him back. So, you know, this shows you where Tyson was at that time, and you know, he was even though he could calm himself down, it was you could, he was so on the edge where you could say one thing and he would go again so and and as I say as we've quietly mentioned with people we surrounded himself with I don't think there was anyone there to put an arm around him and take Tyson, mate, what's going on? Settle down and we'll just try and sort this out because that wasn't the people they were. They don't obviously they were enjoying it. But um, absolute madness. Never seen a bit like it in the ring and, and credit to Holyfield, he just literally just held his ears, put up the towel on and went off to the hospital do you know, Holyfield just alleged, mate. Absolutely nah. <laughs>
2: Yeah, I know, this is the thing with Tyson. He made so many controversial moments outside the ring, but just as many inside the ring. So after losing by disqualification of Evander Holyfield for a second time he, he was out of the ring for two years come back in January 1999 beat Franz Bova then had fights with the Norris before coming in to the UK and this was controversial because obviously Frank Warren had managed to broker a deal to get Tyson over to fight in Manchester against Julius Francis now initially he was denied uh, a visa to come over but eventually they managed to get that period of time where they got him over and that was great for British fans because obviously the British fans that love Tyson wanted to see him so it, it was two it was two fights that he took place in in 2000, the first one was in January stage at the MEN Arena against Julius Francis, obviously they managed to get him into the country, Frank Warren had brokered that deal and he only took four minutes to knock out Francis ending the bout in the second round, he then also fought Lou Savarese in June of 2000 in Glasgow, winning in the first round, that fight only lasted 38 seconds, but again controversy follows Tyson wherever he goes he carried on punching after the bell, after the referee had stopped the fight, and the referee was in the middle of, the, of them stopping the fight. And carry, Tyson's Tyson just carrying on throwing digs, and he ends up knocking the referee to the floor. And it's just more absolute crazy moments again from Tyson. Uh, it's, again, it's just this is just Mike Tyson all over at this period of time. You know, mentally unstable uh, and just wanted to, to hit and hurt anything he could get a hold of.
3: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Uh, and, I mean, the other thing as well, uh, when he went on to fight um, Andrew Galotto as well, I mean, that fight was actually originally uh retired win for Tyson, but later ruled a no contest after he tested positive for cannabis, which is which is actually quite funny considering what he's currently doing at the moment, where he's, uh, he, he's, he's, he's like uh, the face of cannabis at the moment in America in terms of... You know he's earning a mint from it. To be fair to him, but um, yeah. So, uh, to be, you know, there's nothing wrong with Mike Tyson having a joint. I'll tell you that because if he if he did, there's one thing that it might actually settle him down a little bit. Maybe he needed that. Maybe whoever gave him that first joint after sort of having a munching on Holyfield's ear must have uh, must have settled him down. But then obviously not quite because he still had that temper. So. I think, to be fair to him, I think uh, it's not a bad idea for him to be having a dabble in cannabis because I do think it, it makes him much more mellow, that's for sure.
2: <laughs> so after this particular point then against Galotta, we move on and he's calling Lennox Lewis out in, in obviously uh, what was one of the most controversial post-fight interviews ever uh, after beating Lou Savarice.:
0: I only trained probably two weeks or three weeks for this fight. I had to bury my best friend.
2: That was another... I I'd say it's great, but it's it is great, and it's not because it gives you memories where you just laugh and think about how Tyson just said this shit, you know, in post-fight interviews. But it's memorable. It's memorable for us as fans. The moment when he was speaking about Lennox Lewis and how he was he was Jack Dempsey uh, and he was Sonny Liston all rolled into one, and there's nobody who can match him. And uh, you know, he was going to eat Lennox's kids, and it was just absolutely mental. And he was wanting this fight with with Lennox. Lewis. And, you know, there's a reason why he wanted to fight with Lennox Lewis at this point of his career is because he wanted money. Let's be honest, he could they could have fought each other six years before they eventually signed to fight each other for June 2002, another significant moment. And we've covered this particular incident off on the Best Boxing Brawls episode. If you've not checked that out, go and check it out. Brilliant episode. And it was the moment where it was big... Big hype for this fight. It'd been, you know, six years, seven years too late, I suppose. But we all wanted to see it. It was happening. They get on the podiums across the opposite stage from each other. Tyson goes storming over, starts throwing punches, ends up getting Lewis to the floor, bites Lewis in the leg. He's just absolutely manic. And then after all that had ensued, he's kicking off with the uh, with the journalist who was shouting about him going in the straight jacket. <laughs>
0: If I fuck you in your ass, you punk white boy, you faggot, you can't touch me, you're not man enough. I'll eat your asshole alive, you bitch. Fuck you, you hoe. Come and take in my face, i fuck you, you ass for the, everybody, you bitch. Come on, you bitch. You're scared, coward. you got not man enough to fuck with me. You can't last two minutes in my world, bitch. Look at you scared now, you hoe. Scared like a little white pussy. Scared of the real man. I'll fuck you till you love me, faggot.
2: And it's just absolutely crazy. One of the craziest press presses and advertisements for fights you've ever seen.
3: Yeah. Oh, God. And, and even with the uh, journalist shouting it, with, with the punk-ass white boy, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fuck you till you love me. That, That is just still one thing that will... Jeez, uh, man, that, that shit gives me nightmares thinking about my, my family to me. geezer <laughs> did not say wrong well that, that night, and... Um, even then, he had a, he had a nibble on Lewis' end, he? And his leg, bit his leg as well. So, obviously, maybe no, didn't need a straight jacket, but I think he needed his uh, he needed a Hannibal Lecter mask as well, because uh, he was just off his head the game. But um, yeah, I mean, it, it was a big fight. I mean, I remember it sort of it, the nights before, and his friends and going through it with my pal. And he was he uh, was a bit taller than me, and I was, I was trying to demonstrate how Lewis is going to win this fight is just going to keep him in his jab and then he's saying no but you can get underneath him and, but you know it, it was just it, just it got that everybody was talking about it again it was you know it was a big fight it was a huge fight uh, and it was still people still felt that Tyson had something left and he could, he could get rid of Lewis and I think Lewis that night proved to everybody that he was the king of the heavyweight division at that time and um, he finally did beat Mike Tyson um, and, and obviously Tyson you know was he, he, I, I don't think he was anywhere near his peak Lewis will say that he is It would have been interesting to have seen them two in their peaks if it had been a few years earlier, because I think it would have been a different story, but another good fight and a good win for Lewis and and at the end of the day Tyson he made himself a nice few million from that fight as well
2: he certainly did it was it was a great like I said great event the whole dual announcement of it the security guys all across the ring separating him so there wasn't any scuffles that would have ensued literally in the ring before the fight took place but the fight itself was, was one of Tyson trying to come out early to blast Lewis away and Lewis at this point was in his was in his element it was in his peak this was sort of the best Lewis and he was able to dispatch of Mike Tyson uh, quite handily within 7-8 rounds of the fight and then Tyson would then go on to carry on his career for a little bit longer but during the midst of that he was filing for bankruptcy as well at the time so as a result of that he needed money desperately which is... A lot of the reasons why a lot of fighters do end up continuing on the career past the best. Now, in August of that year, well, August of 2003, after years of the financial struggles that he'd suffered, he actually filed for bankruptcy. And on August the 13th, 2003, he entered the ring for a face-to-face confrontation against a K1 fighting phenom, Bob Sap immediately after Sapp had just been in the ring and beat Kimo Leopoldo in Las Vegas so K1 had signed Tyson to a contract with the hopes of making a fight between the two but because of obviously Tyson's felony history it was impossible for him to gain a visa to fight in Japan where the fight would have been the most profitable so as a result after discussing alternative locations the fight ultimately failed to happen which is crazy to think about and it's something I never even knew about and I don't even remember the from around that period of time, that actually Tyson was going to sign to fight in K1, which for anybody who doesn't know what K1 is, it's it's kickboxing. It's a kickboxing that's like you know you have UFC mixed martial arts. K1 is kickboxing specifically. So Mike Tyson was going to be involved potentially in a kickboxing belt. But this is a sad state of affairs, really, because this is the point where he needs to earn as much money as he possibly can. So he's trying to get as much money as he can because of all the debts and the shit he's been left with over the years because of the poor choice he's made and the poor team that he had around him so he decides then to get back in the ring once again on July 30th 2004 he comes in against British boxer very own Danny Williams in another comeback fight which was staged in Kentucky in what was another big upset and another big upset for a British fighter on the roads because nobody expected Danny Williams to go in there and do anything because... Tyson was dominating the early exchanges and then when Tyson started to get through on Williams, you're thinking this is gonna be another easy night, but Tyson was was stopped he was stopped in the fourth round by Danny Williams but that was because his leg went. Now he he ended up fighting on one leg for that fourth round because he'd torn a ligament in his knee in the first round so nobody had knew that he'd actually fucked his knee up in the first round and he'd actually managed to go through three other rounds before being stopped by Danny Williams which was, uh, for British fans it was huge because nobody expected a journeyman like Danny Williams to go in there uh, and stop a guy like Mike Tyson. For Danny Williams that would ultimately lead to a fight with Vitaly Klitschko in which he got soundly beaten by Klitschko but that was a big moment in his career and for Tyson... At this point of his career, it was a sad state of affairs. It was all about the money. He had one more final fight, losing to Kevin McBride in
3: two thousand and five. Yeah, it was. Like, it was a pretty sad end because he, he basically retired, didn't he? In that fight, he he gave up in the sixth round, um, and then ended up retiring from the sport altogether. And it was all money motivated. That's all it was at this point. After the Lennox Lewis fight, have thought he'd have earned enough money. Won or lose, maybe if he if he could maybe getting rematched along the line of Lewis and himself a bit more, but you know, he, he came back, you know, he, as you say, he had a last three fights. It well, a, a surprise, a surprise victory for me. I mean, I, who would have expected Danny Williams to win that fight whether he went or not? I mean, that is, that is a big upset and, and a huge achievement for Danny. And obviously, as you say, Klitschko dealt with Danny after that, but yeah, Tyson, that, that, that was basically after the McBride fight. That was it. Um, he called it a day on June 11, 2005. Um, and, I mean, when you look back on his career, I mean, what what an incredible fighter he was, especially in those early days, in those peak days. Um, and then, obviously, he went into to an absolute abyss midway through it. Um, sort of came back, to be fair to him, and, won world titles once right again um, but yeah, it, it was it always just for me it always just been known as just this ferocious terrifying guy in the ring and he just absolutely demolished any opponent that steps in front of him um, and it was literally you know as I get older and, and you start reading more about Tyson and that's when you realise that it was his life that really impacted on, on his career I mean, everyone, everyone on my road who lived in around my area, everybody had a Mike Tyson VHS indoors for the, for the youngsters. That is a videotape, an obvious videotape. <laughs> um, and uh, I, it, it was always great to watch his fights. And that was how I always, I think from from a young age, I always knew about Mike Tyson. Obviously, I was I a was, uh, Frank Bruno. You know, I lost Bruno. Who was my, He was my guy. And I always wanted Bruno to beat Tyson. Never happened. But Mike Tyson was just a, a great fighter. And it, you just, wonder if, um, if cuss had survived a bit longer or he, or he had, a Tyson was born a bit later I don't know if, if there was any way that Cuss could have managed to been around Tyson to be able to nurture him when he became everyweight champion because that was the problem, when he became that like, superstar and you just had too many people around him and he just wasn't educated enough to work out who the good people were and who the bad people were and I'm sure now today, I, mean, I don't listen to his podcast but I should probably listen to his podcast because he is a great you know, he was one of the best fighters in the heavyweight era. In any era, I think he would have, he could have beaten anybody. We just don't know. And we look back and we can say he could beat this guy and that guy. But he was a great, great fighter in his day. And like you say, that that top top of top of his career was a Spinks fight. But a great, I mean, like, career profiles. When it comes to someone like Mike Tyson, it's just it's, it's just so much information. And I'm sure there's plenty with Mitchell, but. Well, what a great career profile
2: to do. Well, in terms of his legacy then, in 1998, a ranking of the greatest heavyweights of all time by The Ring magazine placed Tyson at number 14 on the list. Despite criticism of facing underwhelming composition during his run as champion, Tyson's knockout power and intimidation factor made him the sport's most dynamic box office draw. So... You know, that's true. I don't know. That was 1998's ranking. I don't know what the rankings are now and, and where people would place him at. But in terms of most fan versions of top 10s or top 20s, Tyson is, is always in there. Some people is in the top 10. For some people he doesn't make the top 10. It's very subjective. It's a very subjective list. But for me personally, the impact he had on the sport during that period of time and for, for what he did in terms of unifying a division in that period of time... For me, he has to be in the top 10. And that is just my personal opinion. Again, subjective people will sit there and debate different facts till the till the cows come home with this. But for me, for what he did at that period of time, unifying a heavyweight division, beating who was put in front of him at that time, which were the best fighters, beating guys like Michael Spinks, who was undefeated, he was a former light heavyweight champion, you know, beating all the guys that he could beat at the time. And... That it was more the outside life that spoiled the career. It's very well documented about everything that happened outside of the ring made a huge impact on what he did inside of the ring. And our first career profile was about Muhammad Ali and about the significant things he did outside of the ring in contrast to the way Tyson's life went outside of the ring. It just goes to show you what a, a difference, good management, a good team around you and good people around you could make to a career of a fighter because of the way Muhammad Ali is always remembered against how Mike Tyson is always remembered and for me that is the biggest comparison to make when it comes to looking at Tyson as one of the greatest heavyweights of all time it's a shoulda woulda situation with Mike Tyson he could have been the greatest heavyweight of all time but will always go down as one of the greatest heavyweights of all time and in some people's minds doesn't even make the top 10. But his life after boxing has actually been nice to see now he's actually come out of the other side of all the shit he's had to put up with during his career he's had various incidents obviously where he's been arrested and he's had little bits of time where he's obviously struggled to pay the bills of course there was one period of time where he actually came back to come and pay his debts off so he returned to the ring in 2006 for a series of four round exhibition bouts against journeyman heavyweight Corey Sanders and Tyson didn't actually wear any headgear but Corey Sanders did and he's been involved in some little exhibition bouts I've seen him in these charity things with people like, uh, I think, I don't know if it was Shaquille O'Neal or a basketball player. I know he was involved in like a little exhibition with one of them as well. And he he was just doing what he needed to do to pay the bills. But I think what was more significant for me was when they brought the Tyson documentary out in around 2012. Uh, When they did that documentary about him and about his life and about him, we got to see more of an insight to what Mike Tyson is like today the mentality the, the the realization of how things have been really fucked up in his life in compared to what other people have had given to them on a plate and then when he went on his undisputed tour it was just nice to see that he turned his life around completely, and as you talked about at the start of the episode, Johnston, the fact that you know he's now gone on to open this cannabis farm, and he's got this whole you know podcast going on, and there's so many different avenues of, of revenue for him now that it seems like he obviously you know is, 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 is things have gone a lot better for him in his life, and and obviously you know he had children, he's got quite a few children, uh, seven of them in particular, unfortunately. Uh, you you know, I've got to touch on it, but one of them unfortunately passed away in a tragic accident at his home where, involving gym equipment. And when you watch the video of him talking about the passing of his daughter, it's it's so hard to watch. It's so emotional. Anyone that's got children will, will totally relate to that. And anyone that hasn't, anyone who's human, will can totally relate to a man in pain. And, you know, one of the, the baddest men on the planet brought to tears by something that's so traumatic that's happened in his, in his life.
4: This is my best thinking at the time. Get my gun, automatic, just like this, and you just go crazy. Who are you going to hurt? Regardless. That's just my first thought. But but when I went to the hospital, the people that were there, they're up there because their kids are dead, too, Mm -hmm. or or about to die. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So uh, who the hell am I? Their kids are dying, too. I don't know. It's, um, something happened that day. I don't know what happened that day. But whatever happened that day? Was there a new Mike Tyson that came the next day? Um, No, I did some cocaine for a week. I had to get high. I had to back then. I had to get high. Um, I couldn't handle it at all. You have to go no, You understand, right? Thank you.
2: But it's good to see where he is now in his life. I'm really happy, you know, as a fight fan first and foremost that he's actually been able to turn it around and as fans now in this day and age we're getting the benefit of hearing all these stories we're getting the benefit of hearing everything from him because this could have quite easily gone a completely different route and we could have ended up talking about Tyson as someone that ended up passing away due to a drug overdose or something that could end up leading on to suicide or you know there's, there's a lot of things that happen in the world that can lead on to things like this and everything that Tyson's been through for him to come out the other side of it the way he has for me uh, has been an absolute pleasure to see
3: definitely definitely and i think i think um him sort of uh, invested in the cannabis farm in america at the minute i think that's that's a great move from him because he's going to earn an absolute fortune It's big business out there um and that that was that was um that was a great move from him um i don't know if that was something he thought of himself or if he was advised to do it because that's going to earn him a lot of money and st- stable money as well. And the last thing you want is these guys to be in this situation where having all these millions and all of a sudden just it all going and then they just, you know, they, they're potless and, you know, they end up going through some, some craziness in their lives and doing stupid things. Um, thankfully, he's obviously got older, he's got more mature, he's got wiser. Um, you know, he, he speaks a lot about his, you know, from, from, what, from the bits I've seen in his documentary and, and other bits and bobs that you get to listen to um, is that you know he, he's quite happy to speak about his career and he's quite open about the things that has happened to him. And um, people ask him a the question and he responds. I think there was one incident where someone in a, in a chat show asked him something and he didn't like it, and uh, and he basically the guy he basically was going to say didn't. You know, punch him up or something he's gonna hit him if he keeps asking him and he just didn't know what to do this interview just one funny thing it's just that side of Tyson it's just always there isn't it he can quite easily snap but um he, i mean recently we've not here we've not heard too many bad things about Tyson which is good we used to hear it all the time but growing up there was always something happening Mike Tyson would be on the news at some point and doing something crazy so it's good that he's obviously he's got a couple family and and, and uh, he's able to, maybe maybe just having a podcast and being able to speak and people listen, I think that's probably good therapy for him. And, and, and as I say, if he's partial to a, a joint or two, that's not a bad thing because that would mellow him out anyway. So, um, Mike Tyson, I mean, what, what, as you say, I, I wouldn't put him, I'd put him on my top 10, I would, heavyweight greats, I probably would. Um, I think the one thing that sort of, the fact that he lost his titles and, you know, he did come back and he did win back, but, you know, it, I don't know, it, it wasn't quite up there with the RLE or like a Joe Lewis for me. I, I think those, they're, they're just a level above, um, slightly. Um, even Larry Holmes, I mean, you know, I know he distracted Larry Holmes. It's difficult to say that, he, would he finish above Larry if he was going to do your time? Greatest list, Jack Johnson, for instance, I mean, that guy would go ahead of him. So, but definitely in the top 10, Mike Tyson, if not, pushing the top five, but a great fighter. Um, obviously it's not his fault that he was, you know, he was, the pool was a deep. No, there were still some brilliant names in, on his resume, but, you know, unfortunately, he didn't have that massive marquee name. Um, two fights obviously losing to twice to Holyfield and then Lewis. If you'd have won one of them maybe you could have pushed him up. But you know, by then the prison sentence killed him and Don King killed him and that's why I've got no respect for the young kid Tyson and he was influenced by the people around him. He just needed bit, better guidance and he could have become the greatest ever greatest ever heavyweight champion, absolutely. But it's great to hear after half after, that the aftermath is that he's doing well and I hope he continues basically and again it's just just a, a great a great career profile and thanks to the listeners and the people that voted because, you know, it's been a pleasure doing it
2: it certainly has been a pleasure for doing it and thank you for everybody that did take part in the vote, it got over 400 votes, it was a really really good vote it was really tough to see the reaction to, to this particular poll so thank you very much for that and as I said at the top of the show, Ernie Shavers will go in there at some point of course this was a hard hitting heavyweight one but Ernie Shavers obviously deserves one in his own right and he'll get one at some point down the line so thank you to everybody that's listened to this episode I hope you've really thoroughly enjoyed our take on the career profile of Mike Tyson if you have let us know at BTR Boxing Pod on Twitter and BTR Boxing Podcast on Facebook if you've not already subscribed to us please go and do so on Apple Podcasts or Podbean, Stitcher, Spreaker, Player FM even Spotify if you've not already rated us please go and do it because it significantly helps us get up the rankings in particular in the Apple Podcasts rankings chart it helps us get up there it helps us get the exposure To the mainstream audience, to see all the quality work that comes out of what we do on a regular basis. So, thank you very much to everybody. We'll hope you've enjoyed this episode of Career Profiles the career profile of the baddest man on the planet, Mike Tyson.